Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah's prayer is the title because that's what we're reading about, Isaiah's prayer. And it continues what began in chapter 63 in verse 15. I think that uh, to be a strong Christian, it helps to go through the Bible verse by verse. It just takes time. It's a lot of work. Not all of it is as exciting as we would like it to be, but the entire process is beneficial. Um, The alternative to me is not acceptable. Well, back in chapter 63, he finished with the last two verses, what we call verses, Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. And so he finishes up that 63rd chapter with, we put ourselves in a spot as though we never knew you as a people. And uh, this is the state of mind that the prophet had as he's offering this prayer to God and writes it down for us. And it just ramps up. When he gets into 65, 66, he's going to give God's response, which is going to be very, um, um, I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> it gives us some millennial stuff too. Anyway, the state of his mind is, is important. And as I would say that from much of the scripture, understanding where the person is coming from when they're writing what they are writing, very insightful. Well, he wanted God to answer the prayers, his prayers about The wickedness in the nation. Well, for us, consider what is so-called transgender story time for kindergartners. Don't you want to call out God? Can you just this one time (laughs) send fire down? And so we can understand he dealt with similar things. And, you know, the, the, the battle between good and evil continues. When Elijah was taken up in the chariot of fire, his mantle fell to the ground, and Elisha picks it up. And when he gets to the Jordan to part it, of course, he touches the Jordan with the mantle, and he says, where is the God of Elijah? And how we find ourselves saying that to God in critical times. And if you say, well, I haven't, well, you haven't been around long enough. Stick around. Uh, You'll get there. Where is the God of Elijah? Lord, where are you? Well, this chapter uh, is going to build upon that. And also, he starts off this prayer in chapter 63 with this request from God. It's very important because it ties into this, this chapter. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart, And your mercies towards me, are they restrained? He's crying out to God. So here, at the beginning of this prayer, chapter 63, verse 15, he asks God to look down, to take his case under consideration. Now he starts off with asking God to come down. Verse 1 now, Isaiah 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down that the mountains might shake at your presence. Can you come down and clean up shop? You take care of this stuff. So having received the vision of the warrior in chapter 63, the one that comes up from Basra, that Armageddon, or the end of the Armageddon scene, he's asking God to do some of his judgment now. 
to not wait until the future, to do it now, and to do it in Israel, not Edom. He longs for judgment upon the enemies in his lifetime, that the Gentile, that the Gentile powers would tremble. He'll say that in verse 3. So, uh, remember, the Assyrians did cross into the Promised Land during Isaiah's time as a prophet, and he saw their carnage, and he had to live through these things, and he knew it was... It was brought on by those who were against God, of of the people of God. When Jeremiah, a hundred years later, Jeremiah comes along, and after the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem and, and, and the promised land is just, you know, really nothing to offer, there's this band of Jews that come to Jeremiah and say, ask God. What should we do? We'll do whatever you tell us that he says to do. We're, we're committed. We just want a man of God to tell us. Ten days later, Jeremiah comes back. God says, don't go to Egypt. Stay here. I will bless you. Well, they went ballistic. Sort of like the Philemon principle. You, you think that when you bring something from God to another believer, they're going to be on board. And then it blows up in your face. Well, it didn't happen with Philemon, but Paul didn't know. But Jeremiah, he knew these boys were bad. And of course, they, they said, we're going to worship our fake gods in front of your face. There's nothing you can do. I'm paraphrasing the whole deal, of course. And our wives, they're into it too. They're going to be into this idolatry. In fact, when we stopped it with the idolatry, all the blessings went away. See, they were liars. They were, they, you know, they were messed up people. But those are the people that also Isaiah had to deal with. They were the ones that brought the judgment on them, but they wanted to spin it around. You know, if you, if you call, you know, someone, a, a guy that dresses up like a lady, and dude looks like a lady, <clears throat> and if you say, um, hi, sir, they have a name for that. You're misgendering. They spin everything to make the good seem wicked. That's how it was when Isaiah wrote, they called evil good, good evil. Malachi, we're ringing on it, we'll get to it. But anyway, he's living in this stuff and he calls for God to come down. Verse 2, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries. That the nations, that's the Gentiles, may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things, verse 3, for which we did not look, you came down, the mountain shook at your presence. God, remember when you showed up there and with Moses and Aaron, when you came down from the mountain, when Moses came down from the mountain, when the people were gathered around the mountain? Remember that? What well, can you do some of that now? Seeking actions by God that would cause visible results. Things that would get the job done. And so he asks for very real, visible, unmistakable evidences of God getting involved. Not abstract, concrete, not another Bible study, but action. That's what he's asking for in verses 2 and 3. And that's why he uses these real signs. As fire burns brushwood. He's like, I don't want you to be under, misunderstand God. I need action. 
And so, looking back to previous deliverances, when Yahweh manifested his power as in Exodus 19, that's what he's also bringing up when he talks about coming down from the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And Isaiah says, please do it again. We do the same thing. The Christian is not surprised by miracles. We're surprised miracles don't happen. We, we read the, the Gospels and we read about this, the miracles and the wonders and we, we want that. But we're in the age of faith. That is what is the dominant feature of the believer. Faith based on truth, the outcome love. It has to be that way. Anything short of that is disastrous. And so the Gentiles, they trust in dead idols. Let them see what the living God can do. Please come down. Uh, you, I told the, uh, the thing about the horsefly. I was I, in the summer months sitting in my garage where I, with my laptop preparing, and this horsefly just kept harassing me, coming in uninvited, and uh, would go out and come in so fast. And so finally I'm trying to stalk it, and it lands, it gets away. One more time, about five feet from me, there it is. I'm making my move, and it takes off. But this flycatcher, bird, swoops down, grabs it, takes it 40 feet up into a tree. I can see it, and just has a nice meal. It's like, see, now that's what it means to come down from heaven. That's what it means to, to do something miraculous. Now, can you repeat that? I've got a list here. It's not how it works. And we say, okay, we'll do our duty. Aye, aye. And we do what we're supposed to do. We learn to serve zealously without divine intervention. Or should I say any more divine intervention? Because there is divine intervention when we come to God. That is God interfering with the processes of, of sin and the curse. But we, I want it every day. Um, I think something would be wrong with somebody. No, that's right. I don't need any help, God. Uh, I want something every day that's spectacular. Uh, but I know better. Verse 4, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by ear, nor has I seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. <laughs> Isaiah, you're trying to butter up God? Well, from the beginning, Yahweh has demonstrated that he only is God. And that the Gentiles are just making stuff up. Though there are a few of the Gentiles, of course, that had it right, Job being one. Balaam for a while. And I know there are those that fuss and say, well, he wasn't really one of Yahweh. No, read the story. You'll see, he'll say Yahweh is his God. Yahweh is his God. But anyway... Coming back to this, um, man has no grounds for conjecture when it comes to who God is. It's either revelation or not. So you ask, can so many human beings get this wrong? Can so many human beings be going to hell? Uh, who are these idolaters and these atheists? Who is deceiving them? Well, the deceiver. And they're accountable for these things. But we're also accountable when we get a chance to share the gospel. Paul cites this verse in Isaiah, this fourth verse in Corinthians. And I, it's often misused or used incorrectly to refer to God showing wonders from heaven. 
That's not what the verse means uh, there in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. And because I'm a professional, I have it right here. See? <laughs> anyway, but it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. A little interpretation going on there, but it's a quote from this fourth verse. And it's not about signs or wonders, because in the previous verse, he says the rulers of this age did not know. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord. And then he goes on to say, in verse 10, God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. So the meaning of the verse is not... When it says, you know, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor I perceived by ear, nor has I seen. He's not saying, talking about the miracles rolling off of the throne of God. He's talking about God imparting knowledge about God to the apostles and to the prophets. That's how Paul is applying it. And Isaiah is also saying, no one has seen these things about you, unless you show them. And um, in making this distinction between the false gods and the true God. So Christians uh, cannot understand the things of God without God, and neither can anybody else. And thus, of course, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the, the natural man cannot know the things of God. They're foolishness to him, nor can he know them. Spiritually discerned. Revelation imparted to God's people. And in Corinthians, it pertains to the messianic mysteries unfolded. Now remember, no matter what you're going through in life, you still have the responsibility to be a basic Christian. That doesn't stop. And Christians have gone out that way at the stake on fire. They've gone out slowly and, and, and on their deathbeds. They've gone through all sorts of things. And they've always maintained their faith. God's truth are not discoverable by natural means, but by spiritual means. And that spiritual means is the Holy Spirit, God himself. So, who acts for the one who waits for him? Well, God works while we wait. We can't see everything. He does. God works for him that waits for him. And his unwillingness to deal with evil in an immediate way maybe a thorough way, does not mean that he's doing nothing. Go back to the story time. Through the, you know, the perverted, the perversions that are taking place. We want God to act immediately. We don't know all that's going on. Habakkuk the prophet didn't like what God was showing him concerning the judgment on, on Judah. The same people that gave Jeremiah a hard time, but this was earlier. And God said to Habakkuk, because Habakkuk said, okay, I'm just going to obey. I'm going to watch, and I'll see how he does this, but he's going to be faithful. And he was. And he finishes up Habakkuk 3 with this wonderful, I don't know, if the food goes away, if internet trucking shuts down, I'm still going to be faithful. But before we get to that, well, I'm not going to go back to it tonight, but Habakkuk said, God's speaking to him, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries, wait for it, because it surely will come, it will not tarry. 
This is a style that we find in Scripture of using more words than are necessary or repeating a word or a thought to enforce the idea. It's going to happen. You've got to wait. That's just your duty. And so waiting um, is a big part of Christianity, a big part of the faith of the Old Testament. Righteous also. Saul, King Saul, routinely refused to wait for God. He was dissatisfied with how God did things without saying it. He just did opposite. And they lied about it. I've done all that God sent me to Samuel's. And then what's the bleating of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? If you did everything, I wouldn't be hearing this. David, on the other hand, repeatedly waited for God. In spite of his failures at times, twice he could have killed Saul, ended the, the nightmare. And twice he did not. David was greatly inconvenienced while he waited for God. For God to fulfill his promises, as a matter of fact. I'd rather emulate King David than Saul any day. And how I perform while I wait for God reveals my level of faith. And I have to wait or, whether I'm going to wait or not. Um, Abraham and Sarah didn't wait for the child. They, they got Hagar involved and... What was the outcome? What, what is the epitaph of Ishmael? His hand is against every man and every man's hand is against him. That's who they brought into the world through Hagar. A violent man. A guy you don't want for a neighbor. Esau would have been a good neighbor. Handy at everything. You know, he's a man's man. But, but not a very good believer. And so uh, we perform as believers that he has allowed us to be steadfast in submission to him. And the slowness of God to act is due to his long suffering. In other words, he knows what he's doing. There are other people involved, and we accept that. Uh, one of the problems that you may struggle with while waiting, I have, is will my waiting be meaningless? Will I just be waiting for nothing? Will there be no bang for the buck? Well, that's not my business. You have to ignore those kind of thoughts. My role is to be obedient as best I can. And there are areas that you may struggle in when it comes to obedience, but there are other areas you excel in. You're given a chance, and you have to just excel in those areas. Satan hates that, especially if you discover, you know what, this is, this is what God's called me to do. I can do this one. I have the desire. I have the ability I have the availability and the opportunity. You get those four, you, you, got, you got a good deal going on. But you get somebody that has the ability, and even the zeal, but they're not available for whatever reason, um, they're really not helpful. Uh, maybe they're in that season of their life. You've got to give space there. But if that's their whole life, that's not good. Verse 5, you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you and your ways... You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. Well, the magnanimous prophet sharing in the, you know, he's not putting himself above the wicked that he could. He could, he could say, God, you know these apostates that are people like Ahaz and Manan. We knew you, but he doesn't. 
But he also points out, you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. So remember that. He says God is aware of those who are doing what they're supposed to do. This is said by a man who's received many revelations. The whole story about him and King Hezekiah is, is just remarkable. It's not, it's a spiritual story. Quite miraculous. David wrote, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Our compliance is based on our faith. And uh, we know, we abide, we side with God, even when our prayers go ungranted. I didn't say unanswered. Because when God doesn't grant the prayer, that's the answer. No. And, and, and many of them like that. Sometimes painful to me. Always, always though, when I am determined to just do my duty, to struggle if that's what I have to do. Always that is hateful to Satan. And always it is useful to God. And always it is beneficial to me. These demands are not permanent. They are for one lifetime. The day is coming when we will be free from this. Who, he continues here in verse 5, Who remembers you in your ways. Well, our delight in the Lord, it directly influences our behavior. But I, I you know, it is, it is probably superior to serve God faithfully, effectively, when you're miserable. I mean, like, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do this. Uh, that's mature Christianity at work. Jesus said if this cup could pass. But it can't pass. Uh, Psalm 40, verse 8, David. I delight to do your will, O God. And your law is written on my heart. David, of course, loved the word of God. He didn't have as much of it as we do. We have more reading to do than he does. Verse 16 of Psalm, of Psalm 16, verse 4. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after other gods. Their drink offering of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips, complying to the Old Testament law given through Moses. Not even to mention these, give them, don't even give them the, the attention that they crave. And so here's David, passionate about obeying God, and God remembers these ways, unlike Saul, who in distress turned to the underworld, went to the witch of Endor. And pretended not to be who he was in the process. Saul's religion was the outcome of a life of secondhand worship. That was his life, secondhand worship. And he thought because he was fooling people like him, that he was also fooling people unlike him. Samuel didn't want to see what he was seeing in Saul. It broke his heart. And he had to struggle with that. And I don't think Samuel ever really loved David like he loved Saul. And that's understandable because, you know, there was so much he put into Saul. And he's much older now. And, and when David comes, that doesn't mean he didn't love David. But you can, you, you can tell that he, he just didn't want Saul to be the failure that he was. Um, and, and so uh, true faith demonstrates itself. Not only by moral conduct, but by unswerving, unswerving, acceptable worship. 
A lot of people worship God in an unacceptable way. A lot of Christians go to church and behave in unacceptable ways. You say, wait a minute, that's not scriptural. That's, in fact, that's contradictory. Uh, some things may not be in the scripture and they're acceptable. Maybe, maybe you go to a church and instead of singing songs, they yodel. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> maybe that's not so bad. Not my way. But um, then, the, the, you know, there's some, there's some space, is what I'm saying. But then in other areas, there is no space. Wrong is wrong, and that's that. So, again, it is possible to walk in strict adherence to religion, the legalist, without delighting oneself in that religion, that would be Saul. Can you say, when you read about Saul, do you say, boy, he delight, He had those moments where he delighted in the Lord. He had flashes of possibility, and that's it. Well, you, it says here, you are indeed angry, for we have sinned. Well, they're spiritually impure. And there was never far from them as a people. And you can say this about some, some you know, whole Christi- sects of Christianity or tracts of Christianity. Impurity, if it wasn't running in the background, it was running in the foreground. It was either running wild or waiting for its opportunity to run wild. That's the history of the Jews. And in many t- cases, it's history of some people in Christianity. Isaiah 67, verse 7, Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says Yahweh, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Bosom. So what I'm pointing out here from Isaiah 65 is God says, this has been a habit with the wicked in Israel. And remember, Judah, the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom, it, it, there were those that fled from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. So there were all the tribes were in Judah now. It wasn't as though they were all taken captive and there were no more Benjamites and no more Gadites. No, they were there now in Judah. But Judah was, of course, the dominant tribe, both in number and authority and calling. And in this country, we enjoy uh, prosperity. While at the same time, there are others in this country who want to destroy that prosperity from within, using that prosperity they've gained here. Well, Isaiah had the same type of people in his, his world, trying to replace Yahweh with Satan, or paganism that came out of Satan. And it, it broke his heart, and there's the things he's dealing with. He says, in these ways, we continue, and we need to be saved. Well, there needed to be repentance from the guilty, which... Did not come. You look at the last four kings of Judah. They didn't repent. They had every reason to. They had the prophet Jeremiah. They had other prophets. They had Uriah, who they hunted down in Egypt and killed, and brought him back and killed him with the sword, and threw his body into a common grave. So Jeremiah, dealing with this impudent women and defiant men who worshipped the Queen of Heaven, I alluded to it earlier, Jeremiah 44. This is what they said to Jeremiah after he said, this is what God wants and this is what's going to happen to you if you don't listen. You asked me, you promised you'd listen, and uh, now we're finding out you're liars. Well, here's what happened. But we will, this is the bad guys talking to Jeremiah. But we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings and our princes, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For them we had plenty of food, were well off, and saw no trouble. 
That's these smart mouth people coming up to Jeremiah saying these things like that. This is that. Uh, um, this is what God uh, Isaiah had to deal with a hundred years earlier, and before him, the other prophets had to deal with it. And that's I'm reading it to show you the infestation was there over the centuries. And if it wasn't running in the background, it was right up front. There it is, up right up front. Ezekiel, he comes after Jeremiah. He's a contemporary to a point, but he's a little later, a little after. And he saw women worshiping Tammuz and uh, the male priest worshiping the sun. Both of them from the house of God in Jerusalem. Ezekiel 8. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of Yahweh's house. And to my dismay, this is Ezekiel talking, talking. Women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was like a, a god and uh, he's married to a goddess. It's all junk. It's, it's all, who cares? It's the bottom line. I'm not here to learn about Tammuz. Uh, and it's like I'm not worried about Antichrist. It's Jesus Christ that I'm interested in. And, and it's the same thing. Well, here, and when I was younger, younger years, I would look up all these gods and and all, all of the, I, the Lord, what are you doing? <laughs> Who cares? They're lies. Somebody just made them up. They're cartoon characters. Not even funny ones. Anyway, <laughs> then he said to me, this is Ezekiel still talking. Have you seen, O son of man? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. Okay, so the women worshiping Tammuz at the entrance of the temple is one thing. But now to find the priest doing it. So he continues. So he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house. And there at the door of the temple of Yahweh, between the porch and the altar, about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of Yahweh and their faces toward the east where the sun rises. And they were worshiping the sun toward the east. And he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? And he continues to roll out the evil that they were doing before the prophet. So Judah made themselves unclean. This is not... You know, it's not identical to the Christian struggling. So don't make that connection. But it is identical to anybody who is brazen in their sin, blatant, and has no sense of conviction. So verse 6, he continues, Isaiah does, and we all like an unclean thing. We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And so he's including himself because he's not, again, he's not obnoxious. He's, he's not, I'm better than these people, though he, he was. Uh, but he's humble enough. And if, if he didn't say it this way, we'd probably charge him with a little arrogance. When he gets to the next chapter, he's going to talk about the pagan Jews that were holier than thou. Well, Isaiah knew that even though he did not break the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, he still was unclean before God, as are all created beings. The unclean was forbidden from entering into the temple for sacrifice and worship. Sin makes men not only guilty, it makes us unclean. 
And because we are guilty, we need to be saved. And because we are unclean, we need to be sanctified. Thus, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, but only if you are saved. And so just as our goodness had nothing to do with our salvation, our goodness does not entitle us to take our place in heaven. It is all through Christ. And being aware of that makes us more effective. That's humility. Humility, in the biblical sense, primarily is our sense of self in the presence of God. And when you see men like Daniel and John the Apostle fall down as though dead in the presence of a manifestation of God, then you get an idea that um, humility is um, beneficial, but it is not to humiliate. It is a sense of one's presence, of who, you, who we truly are and who God is, that relationship. That we're not disfellowshipped from God anymore. Well, he says here, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. He's talking about himself. He's talking about all the righteousness of the righteous. Self-righteous, self-righteousness shrivels up before a verse like this one. Yet, sinners can be ingenious of surviving the hit, the death knell of self-righteousness. Anyway, if our righteousness is filthy... What must our sins look like to God? What must that unrighteousness about us be like? Well, in spite of, he knows that. In spite of that, he died for us. This psalm, Psalm 143, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no, no one living is righteous. Now, you know, when we're conscious of these things, we esteem the Lord. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, and he will lift you up in due time. The word filthy in the Hebrew here is a severe word. Uh, it's, it's worse than just the word filthy, so we can leave it there. And filth opposes cleanliness. And uh, the world hears about these things, and they shriek. The Bible, they say, is nothing more than a purist message that interferes with pleasure. In other words, you do-goodies don't have the good. We're good too. Who's, who gives you the right to say what's moral and immoral? Well, God does. And uh, that's where the battle continues. Malachi, echoing Isaiah. These are the, the Jewish people. And, uh, you know, Malachi is calling them out on their behavior. And uh, he says, everyone who does evil, he says, you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them. Well, centuries later, they gave a name to that called universalism. Everybody's going to go to heaven. The universe is going to go. Everybody's going to go. It doesn't matter about your sin and the existential nonsense, all the other Philosophical, demonic teachings come out of that. And then they said, I'll reread Malachi 2.17, in that you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them, or, Malachi saying to them, or you say this, where is the God of justice? In other words, I'm doing fine today. I don't see fire coming out of heaven getting me. 
It's just big talk. There's no God there to judge me. A bunch of smart mouths. Like Cain. Who, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, you would like to say, God, you just backhand him one time. And he'll tumble for a month. Uh, but that's not what happened. Um, so they were mocking that God uh, could not judge him. And so the New Testament stands defiant, as does the Old. There's none righteous, as it is written, as the Scripture says, regardless of what they say. Because, you know, Satan, well, it is written. Well, it is written again. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why Jesus said, you have to be born again. You're a train wreck. And you've got to get God's touch on you. To be born from above. Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Get out of that unclean state. And so again, Jesus said, don't marvel that I said you, should, you must be born again. Don't be amazed by that. And so we fast forward a little bit more. To Zechariah the priest. And there Joshua. Sorry. Well Zechariah was a priest. He was a prophet too. And he gives us this picture of Joshua the high priest. As Zechariah was ministering. And this is in the days when the Jews come out of captivity. They come back to the promised land. And they're very slow about rebuilding their temple. Their place of worship. They settled in. They made houses for themselves. And God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to light a fire under the people. And in one scene, Zechariah tells us this story that is insightful about Satan, the accuser of the brethren, and what God wants to do with his people who are unclean, but his people still, the righteous. Not the like all of Israel, the people in that sense, the individual that is in love with the Lord. And so now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Now those filthy garments, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, this is the Lord, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you which with rich robes. Where does that show up in the New Testament? prodigal son put a robe on my son and a ring and sandals on his feet and give him a bath because he's with the pigs so anyway uh, there's you know it's this powerful story to see how psalm 51 verse 2 this is david after he had been busted in his sin wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin just the cry of the believer okay so god is merciful with me and i love it so much am i merciful with those around me who repent we all fade as a leaf it says here in verse six well sin dims the glory the evidence of inherent sin and our iniquities that's the inside and the out like the wind have taken us away, incapable of changing direction, out of control. Our iniquity has taken us away like a leaf in the wind. There's a difference between being blown and flying. Psalm 38, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. God does not look at a verse like that and say, how did that, how did that get in the Bible? He authored this. He knows who he's dealing with. The sinners that repent 
don't want to sin, but are stuck with a sinful nature. Verse 7, And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Well, when he says there is no one who calls on your name, it certainly does not. It's not an absolute statement, but it is the, the, the state of the, the kingdom of Judah. Uh, those uh, outside the remnant. And when, he, when we get to chapter 65 in, in verses 8 and 10, God brings up, I know who my remnant is. The, I know who the righteous are. And so we understand that all of this belongs together. Uh, the chapter divisions are just for us to help us find things, but that's not always how they flow. So God was not in their thoughts because he was not allowed to be in their hearts. Very simple. He did not come to mind, therefore he did not come into sight. And that's why Isaiah says, You have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. And as a kingdom, they, they all got it. They all suffered. Uh, Daniel had to suffer because of unrighteous people. And so, verse 8, But now, O Yahweh, you are our father, we are the clay, and you, our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. Well, there you are as a believer, spinning on the wheel, the pressure of the hands of God on you. And yet, he's shaping you into the image that he wants, which is the image of the Son, and he um, is saying through the potter's wheel that I am a hands-on God. I have not outsourced this. This was Moses' fear. You know, I'll send my angel. Oh, no, Lord, if you're not going, I don't want to go. Don't send us. We need want your hands on us. This is likely the inspiration of Jeremiah 18 when he goes down to the potter's house. And there he sees God doing what he does. And so we continue verse 9. Do not be furious, O Yahweh, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. And as the psalmist said, the, you know, the sheep of his hand, continuing verse 10, Your holy cities are a wilderness, Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation, our holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praised you, is burned up with fire, and all our our pleasant things are laid waste. Well, this verse is one of them that causes some of the theologians to say, well, it's not one Isaiah. There's two parts of the book written by two different men. Well, Jesus disagreed with that because Jesus quotes both parts of the book and in both times he says, well, did the prophet Isaiah say? So I'm going to go with Jesus on this one and every other one too. So, but you can understand if, if they're not, you know, if, if they're not coming to the Scripture ready to trust the Scripture, they're going to come up with these harebrained observations and get a paycheck for it. You know, some university paying these guys to teach this stuff. And they have been for centuries, well, for, for a long time. I don't want to do the math right now. But uh, so what is happening here? Because what he's describing is the temple destroyed. Well, that's 120 years away at least, from, from right now, uh, where Isaiah's life is. Well, as John on Patmos was shown enough of the future to speak with prophetic authority as though he were there. 
That's what we're getting here. This has a lasting relevance to the people that he is writing this for and publishing this. Future generations will come. Just like uh, when Daniel read Jeremiah talking about 70 years, they're going to be in their captivity. Well, Jeremiah is going to read Isaiah. uh, And of course, Isaiah references the potter and God like that twice. And Jeremiah has it in his prophecies too. It's called... I don't know who made it up, but prophetic presence. You're speaking prophetically about a future event as though you're there in the future. And we've seen this before, and we covered it. We didn't covet. We covered it in chapter 53. To be so certain in your description of the future that you're a participant and it's all over the Old Testament prophets. These guys spoke as though, it was like, I mean, there's no doubt about this coming. It'd be thousands of years away, and they were sure. Isaiah 53, he, has despi- he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Well, Isaiah, you weren't there. That's 700 years away. But that's prophetic presence. It shows up in other places. I just chose that, that uh, example. I could give you more, but then we'll get out of here later. So uh, anyway, um, these things are God saying to his people that what's going to happen is not by chance. It is the satanization of the kingdom that brought these things about. And I told you this so that we could come along and say, this has a lasting relevance to me. God has already called these things before they happened. I have no reason to doubt him going forward. He is that uh, trustworthy. Verse 12. um, Yeah, verse 12. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Yahweh? Will you hold your peace and afflict us severely? Because of the the iniquity coming, the the, the ruin of the temple, the destruction of these things. uh, are, are Are you done with us? That's where the prophet is going. Or at least have you withdrawn so far from us that we're just going to writhe in pain. Is this where we have uh, see Israel today after the crucifixion? Well, those are big questions. God's reply is in the next chapter. In the next chapter, he's going to answer these questions. And uh, that's where we leave off for this evening. Well, let's, let's pray. Our Father, um, again, may we understand that your word will not pass away. It is trustworthy. And what was good and effective for the prophets is good and effective for us. May you find us as confident in our New Testament, in your words, be they directly from you in the Gospels or from the Apostles and the prophets. May we May we be found to trust your word. May you get us all home safely. Tonight we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.